series finale special on the popular long-running fantasy drama The Conservative Party. <laughs> the Iron Queen is being driven mad by her fantasy of bringing order and peace to the imaginary kingdom of Westminsteros with its unruly warring factions and bitter faith-based conflict and dreams of burning it all to the ground. And with her withdrawal bill back for a fourth reading, it's true that what is dead may never die. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, and this week we'll be looking at the final days of the European election campaign. Are the Tories really facing oblivion? Is there time for Labour to change its stance? And could the Brexit party execute a reverse takeover of the Tories? And we'll finally be trying to answer the only question that matters, who should remain as vote for next Thursday? Two of our regulars are here. Nina Schick is a political commentator and broadcaster on Bloomberg, Sky and the BBC, and she's back on the show after a bit of a break. Hi, Nina. How are you? Good. Good to be back. Nice to see that nothing has changed. <laughs> no, never does. <laughs> you were on Sky talking about the EU gathering in, in Romania, and afterwards you said we've become reverse Turkey, i.e. soon to leave instead of soon to join, but neither ever happens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How's the EU27 feeling at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the UK seems to be in this weird limbo right now. And actually, it would make things a lot easier for the prime minister if the EU were to push the UK to out, so to make the UK's decision for it. But I don't think that's going to be happening. It's definitely not going to be happening anytime soon. There's talk of, you know, once nothing happens by October, there's already talk in Brussels of the next extension. The EU doesn't want to be the bad guy here, even though their patience is running thing. This is... The UK's decision to make a loan. Ian Dunt edits politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, what are political commentators going to do now that the Game of Thrones analogies are running out? Is it, <laughs> is it the last chance for Seamus Littlefinger and Boris Joffrey? What are you guys going to do? What are you and Andrew going to do when you don't have Marvel films or Game of Thrones to use as a hook? I don't know. Talk about politics, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in the real world, why would the last ever vote on the May deal in June be any different from all the other last ever votes? Oh, it probably won't be. Um, I mean, what makes it slightly different and gets it past Burko is the fact that it's, it's the actual legislation. So no more of the actual motions, no more of this meaningful vote stuff. You're just going to put the legislation there. That should make it worse, I think, because once you're, it's out, you actually see all the dreadful little sort of gremlins that are hidden inside of it. They're going to drive Brexiters completely nuts. Mm. If you look at, there was a letter sent to the Brexit secretary by uh, John Redwood the other day, which was losing its mind about like the most innocuous provisions in the actual deal. I mean, stuff about good faith agreements and all of that. If he loses his mind over that, he's going to you know, have some really nightmarish experiences when he sees the actual legislation of, of the deal. So on that basis, I don't think it would do her any good at all. The reason she's done it, I think, is to buy herself a bit of time. Tory backbenchers won't be complaining quite so much because now there's this point a few weeks away where actually they have a chance to, to sort of attack her then. She also might arguably be able to spare herself some of the trauma of the European election results because this will be a couple of weeks afterwards. So instead of just that, that sort of intense feeling of horror as those results come in, she'll be able to point to this event in a couple of weeks' time. So on that basis, on her short-term basis, mm. I think that's why she did it. In terms of passing it, I don't think it'll help at all. We're joined this week by Stephen Bush, the political editor of The New Statesman, whose daily morning call brief has the unenviable task of explaining everything in one simple email. <laughs> He's also the only person in British political journalism who's more puntastic than producer Andrew. <laughs> He's recently advised us, don't rush to judgment on the Brexit Party's polling and don't fear the reaper when it comes to the EU elections. <laughs> Hello, Stephen. Welcome to Romaniacs. Don't be shy. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Um, as a rare guest who, who knows about football, un unlike Ian and I, were you convinced by Theresa May saying Liverpool's comeback against Barcelona proved that even when your European opposition have got you beat, Britain can still prevail? 
Yeah, with the German coach. Real finger, so, finger on the pulse stuff. So I think there are a couple of problems with the analogy. <laughs> not, not least that the Liverpool football squad is an, an international mm. team of a variety of nationalities managed by a German. But also her central argument for the withdrawal agreement is she has got a result in Europe, right? It, she's not saying vote for this so I can go back and get a better deal. She's saying I've won the European Cup. <laughs> but you are refusing to accept ownership of it, right? The, the analogy just falls down completely, right? The analogy would work if, you know, uh, Liverpool and, and God forbid, or God forbid Spurs won the European Cup. Um, and then they, ref- you know, then, then, you know, their, their fans went, no, 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 we can't possibly accept this. <laughs> <laughs> we, we think that we, you know, it, it's an erosion of our sovereignty to, to, to take the European Cup. So it, it, it just... It does not work at all. I mean, in many ways, actually, the the the, the analogy is with Spurs, right? A, a team who somehow have managed are still in Europe despite trying incredibly hard not to, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite literally, the contortion. I, I genuinely feel that there must have been some kind of weird match fixing going on because it was as if there was some kind of weird late season challenge between Spurs and Arsenal of just like, look, no, no, no. You, uh, we've managed to lose three two at home. And it's like you're like a little baby. We're we're gonna somehow go down to nine men. They were literally two men from having to to concede the walk the walkover um, against Bournemouth of all of all people. Somehow managing to finish uh, finish fourth uh, and and stay in in Europe, which makes me fear that the ultimate end of the season is somehow them having a nil-nil draw and winning on penalties, which is really too horrid to contemplate. But it's, some, it's some good work from the Brexit writing room to have uh, both European finals played by English teams right at this particular <laughs> moment. I mean, this is, this is, it's good fodder for, um, for people writing about Brexit. There's probably a pun in there for you. Yeah, I mean, there defi- there's definitely some good uh, material. But I mean, I'm currently having a policy of not really acknowledging the other European final. Of course, Arsenal is in one of them hmm. and Spurs is in the other. Uh, and I'm basically choosing to not acknowledge the existence of either in copy because if the one involving Spurs goes badly, I've just decided to declare that the European Cup is non-canonical. Just one of those people who goes, oh, I don't like it now. And you don't let they. Yeah, they should only be champions in it. Yeah, and just kind of become one of those people. Well, I don't good. have any idea what any of this stuff meant, but it was very enjoyable. <laughs> Stephen will be here with us throughout the show after these short messages from Nina. Romaniacs Live is happening this coming Tuesday, and it will be our last live event in London until the autumn. The final few tickets are going fast at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. So don't miss your chance to see Dorian, Ian and Naomi Smith live on stage on Tuesday, May the 21st with our special guest, Marcus Brickstock. We'll be looking at the final few days of the EU elections, thinking about where the Remain campaign goes from here, and of course, answering questions from you in the audience. Also, Dorian will be talking about and signing copies of his brand new book, The Ministry of Truth, the biography of Orwell's 1984. Very topical. Who knows how things might have changed by the time we come back. It could be your last day to hear our back catalogue of classic Theresa May material. (laughs) So book without delay. That's LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. And if you're a Patreon supporter, check your inbox for your discount code. And don't forget our latest creative writing challenge, the Marc Francois MP Battle Action War Stories Awards. (laughs) Send us 200 words of your finest World War II storytelling, starring the D-Day Dawson of Rayleigh and Wickford. We want to hear plenty of Donna and Blitzen. (laughs) The best entry will win a special I've Been Up the Jungle with Marc Francois, Romaniacs t-shirt. 
and we'll read it out on the show too. Email your entry to info at Romaniacs.com with the subject line, It Ain't Half Hot, Mark, by Friday the 24th of May. And don't forget, Romaniacs Live at the Leicester Square Theatre next Tuesday, May the 21st. Tickets at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. Thanks, Nina. We're in the dying days of a European election campaign that few of us thought we'd see, and it is exactly what the Tories didn't want to happen. <laughs> the latest BMG polling is a bit more encouraging than the last YouGov data. It puts Nigel Farage's new Brexit party at 26%, not 34%. It's encouraging for resurgent Lib Dems at 19%, moderate for the equivocating Labour Party at 22%, and catastrophic for the Tories, who are pretending that it isn't happening at all, at just 12%, ahead of uh, the Greens at 10 there's not much change in Scotland, with Yuga predicting three SNP MEPs and one each for Labour, Brexit and the Tories. Ian, the, the key narrative uh, in recent days has been, be careful what you wish for, Remain, as Nigel's coming. Um, <laughs> but the Brexit vote is in line, uh, at least in this poll, with UKIP's performance in 2014, which was 27%. Um, if, if this is how it plays out, how should... I mean, there is going to be a framing game. Uh, how should Remainers kind of talk about this? I mean, necessarily, the way that that will break out is that they'll say the Brexit party came first and that's all that matters. And Remainers will say, well, if you tot up the Lib Dem and the Green and maybe the Trinity and maybe the SNP and maybe the Plaid vote, you're going to get the same sort of thing. And you probably will. You're probably, I mean, I, I would expect that you're going to end up with something which is sort of no deal Brexit would look like about a third of the vote. Some kind of washy Tory Labour, is it a deal? Do we want a referendum? Not quite sure, but Dealey sort of looking Brexit stuff in the middle of about that and remain on about 30% as well. And that'll be the divide. I mean, this thing about um, be careful what you wish for the elections, it wasn't so much that anyone was dying to hold the elections. It was more that the elections had to be hold, held in order for us to be able to stay in the EU during the extension. So the actual content of it wasn't ideal. But I have to say, I did think it would go a bit better than this. Cause it was during those days, remember mm. when we had sort of six million people signing up online, you sort of felt, well, here's a bit of, there's a bit of muscle there. What I don't think we'd anticipated was I mean, I've got to say, I have been surprised at the inadequacy of mm. the messaging from lots of Remain leaders. Where it's sort of, you know, we've spent like a couple of years now just going, well, are the Brexters listening to the complexity? Are they taking any of this on? What we hadn't asked was, are the Remainers, you know, Remain political leaders actually listening to any of this stuff? Are they thinking about what's going on? Are they thinking about how they talk to people, what the messages are, what their attitude is, what their story is? Nigel Farage is out there pretty much every day just babbling away this absolute fucking nonsense and they don't seem to have any response to him at all. I must admit, I have this kind of delusion that uh, if you were a Remain politician, um, you would be looking for ideas everywhere, <laughs> right? And so you might listen to this podcast. You might read one of the many articles in such excellent publications as The New Statesman <laughs> or The Guardian, you know, because it's not like we're this sort of lone voice going, oh, here are some things that Remain, you should say. But that doesn't seem to have sort of caught on. So I don't know what they have been thinking about. So Stephen, what do you think of the, the performance of uh, of the Remain leaders so well, far? I think I think there is actually a, an honourable exception to that, which is Vince Cable, right? And then mm -hmm. he has taken that bollocks to Brexit slogan, right? That, that didn't, the Lib Dems didn't sit there coming up with that. That is a slogan they have taken from the pro-European uh, mm. grassroots. Mm. Uh, they have uh, sat there plugging away, doing the hard bits of politics, you know, trying to raise their profile. I think in a way the problem is is that there are well yeah there, there's yeah about a third of the country is going to vote for kind of Brexit exclamation mark. And <laughs> yeah when you kind of go oh but what about the Warrington bombs they go I don't care I just want Brexit. Oh well what about private finance I don't care I want Brexit. The problem which 
I'm not surprised by, but I think this European election is a key indicator of, is lots of Remainers are essentially Remain but, right? You see that in the essential tactical ambiguity of the People's Vote campaign. Is it Remain but the Labour Party should stay intact? Is it Remain but I want to send a message about the environment as well? Is it Remain but I refuse to vote for a party which wants to break up the United Kingdom, right? And those are I I'm I just want to I'm not saying I think those any of those buts are illegitimate, but there is this kind of weird um, sort of Remainer delusion that you can not behave like a swing voter, so you can continue to vote for the Labour Party or in some cases the Conservative Party and expect to be treated like a swing voter mm. by mm. those political parties. Um, all that you are Remain, but I have complicated feelings about the coalition. Um, we kind of knew that was the case anyway. I actually think the positive thing about both the local elections we've had and the Euro elections we're going into is that the number of people who are willing to kind of stop saying I am Remain, but seems to be smaller than I feared. Uh, and it underlines that there is not a stable, um, a politically stable and popular resolution to the Brexit uh, crisis, right? There is not a, uh, you cannot get 50% of the vote plus one for no deal smash into the ground Brexit. You can't get 50% of the vote plus one for a deal. And you can't get 50% of the vote plus one for let's call the whole thing off, mm -hmm. which perversely is, I think, hugely positive for anyone who wants to call this off eventually, because that means that the kind of cowardly position, right, is still going to be transition. Well, we're going to do the we're going to sort of go through the parties one by one. I'm not sure what to say about the Tories, is they, given that they're pretending that there isn't an election. They don't exist. And I mean, again, it, the result I think will reflect that. It is worth us mentioning, isn't it? The the leaflet they sent out on the day that they confirmed the elections were taking place, they put out a leaflet saying we're going to try and stop these elections taking yeah. place. And it was it was a notable moment, I think, because it was you know this tactic that May always has of just say whatever you need to today to survive until tomorrow. Because of the delay in printing, it meant that she was publishing the lie when it had already been disproven by her own deputy coming out to say it. And I just thought as a moment, as a particular moment of a party doing this, you had to highlight that leaflet. It should be framed somewhere mm. as just the absolute fucking pinnacle of their hypocrisy and deception. Yeah. So we have that. But that's pretty much the only thing you can say about the Tory campaign. OK, Nina, we'll, we'll start with uh, Labour. And the big question um, still is this position on the confirmatory referendum. I really wish they hadn't rebranded this. It's confirmatory. It's just it's not a good word. Um, do we think a kind of fantasy last minute pivot would bring votes back from the from the Lib Dems and Change UK? Do you think a lot of the people who are kind of really angry with Labour would actually be kind of won back if if they just went for the referendum? I don't think so. I think they've the people who are really angry at them. I think they've lost them already. And I think. Every day you see kind of different messaging coming out from Labour and the one thing that seems to be consistent is that they don't have a consistent message on whether how they feel about a confirmatory vote, whether or not they support a second referendum. I think a lot of people were initially quite angry when commentators said things like, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is a Brexiteer. He does not want to have a second referendum. He wants this Brexit to go through so he can go on and talk about other things. And I think that voters are starting to see that right now. I think Labour's position on this has almost been just as messy at, as the Conservatives. Um, as for as for the elections themselves, you know, the Conservatives are pretending that these elections are not happening. 
And let's not forget that the only reasons they are happening is because in large part, Brexiteers within the Conservative Party refuse to vote for the deal that would deliver them Brexit. So, I mean, for all their cries of, you know, waste of public money and how dare we be taking part in these elections, we are literally taking part in these elections because of them. They're obfuscating, Labour's obfuscating, and it's all just a mess. Um, If the Brexit Party does come top, like the polls suggest, um, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that they traditionally, so UKIP or the protest parties traditionally do well in these elections. That's mm. not only true in the UK, it's true uh, all over the rest of Europe as well. So if they win about a third of the votes, that's in line with not only their performance, UKIP's performance last time around, but also kind of what the anti-establishment populist vote gets in Europe as a whole. Stephen, Keir Starmer's gone to the edge of rebellion by demanding a vote as part of any any deal with the Tories. Uh, at the same time, Corbyn is fighting this election on, on austerity and, and actually said, I believe, in a, in a meeting, was it a PLP meeting? So this should be about local issues. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we've done, we've done a lot of criminology, Labour criminology, on the, on the podcast, um, and as, as have you. And, I mean, does it get to the point where you just... I mean, do you take seriously, a, you know, a statement from Starmer or Emily Thornbury and then, oh, unnamed spokesman person X disagrees? Like, how much of this is actually worthy of kind of deep analysis and how much is like, oh, this again? I mean, I kind of think um, we should take it as seriously as you would any statement from a frontbench or cabinet person on an issue in which you know a party is badly divided right then in another way actually the thing is right labor's policy is not unclear uh the implications of it are their first preferences for brexit to happen uh and then they might in some circumstances consider a second referendum of course the reason why what is not clear is what the implication of that is because we know that Mm. half of uh the Labour Party is crossing its fingers about the maybe we can get a deal and half of the Labour Party is crossing its fingers about we can have a second referendum. But it doesn't really matter how sincere the people are in are involved uh, as long as the actual process happens. So the interesting thing in terms of how much, how seriously should we take uh, any individual person in the shadow cabinet or the trade union movement saying something about Labour's policy is has that person's view about what this policy means in practice changed? Mm. Because what this really comes down to is not, you know, how unhappy is Jeremy Corbyn going to be if he whips for another vote, uh, is not, you know, will some people in the shadow cabinet quit? It is, can the Labour Party, will the Labour Party deliver the majority of votes in order to have another referendum? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in an odd way, it's formal position semi doesn't matter in terms of from an analytical perspective obviously from a you know deciding whether or not to vote for the Labour Party perspective it matters a great deal but um but yeah I kind of think that in an odd way the Kremlinology now is is not anywhere near as important as the numerology is that a word Mm. I just invented that yeah (laughs) then the numerology of just you know is this a party which can deliver enough votes for either of those things the thing which is hold the um the let's do a deal with the Tories people uh, below the waterline is there are there are not enough Labour MPs who would vote for it, uh, which means then they can have these conversations for as long as they like. Mm. Uh, yeah. A customs union on its own, without a second referendum, is not going to get enough votes. 
and a softer Brexit might not get enough votes because then the kind of we have to do this because of immigration tendency might decide to abstain. Mm. So, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Ian, if Labour got a, a drubbing in the EU elections, um, or at, le- at least kind of underperformed, I mean, they're not going to go down like the Tories The mm. Tories are, would that, would that make... Um, what impact would that have on the leadership? Honestly, I don't expect that to have very anything? much impact on the leadership at all. Nothing really changes. That, the no, exactly. Yeah. Well, and also they'll be able to construct the argument that we lost a bunch of Brexit voters as well that went to the Brexit party. You could always do that. And probably there'll be some truth to it. Yeah. And, and yeah. so they'll basically be exactly where they were in the first place. It's also, you know, he's not really responding to electoral push in that way. He's, he's just not. That's not the way he's designed. It's certainly not the way he's behaved up until now. So I don't think it'll make that much of a difference. That doesn't stop people like me thinking, I'm going to fucking do it anyway. Because yeah. I sort of think, well, you've got to register your protest somehow. Right. But no, I don't expect it to have a massive impact on Jeremy Corbyn's brain. On to the Brexit party mm. then. Um, John Crace put it in an excellent Guardian piece. Nigel Farage has never found a political vacuum he wasn't desperate to fill. A voice for any spare free-floating grievance. The establishment man for the anti-establishment. <laughs> Uh, Chris described the mood at the, a rally he went to as the blitz spirit being whipped up into a lynch mob, one of the most genuinely disturbing political events I've ever attended. So, has sort of Farage's content-free rage format um, sort of successfully shaped the campaign? Because it's certainly getting a lot of coverage and not all of it as kind of critical as 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 John Crace's. Yeah. Some of it almost sort of admiring, like, oh, something's really... Something's really happening well, here. It's pretty exciting. The critical people tend to almost be the most admiring in a way. In fact, that kind of coverage where you're like, I'm, I'm kind of scared by this by a liberal is exactly the kind of thing that they want and that they do quite well out of. Um, first of all, to put it in context, I mean, at about this point in the 2014 European elections, there were polls coming out that were putting UKIP on the low 30s. Uh, sort of, you know, 34, etc. When the results came out, they went down to, I think, 27. Yeah, 27%. So... Anyway, we should not get too excited. Again, this is pretty much in line with how these guys have done. What I think there is, and I spoke about this last time, is a fundamental change in the manner in which they're operating. No manifesto, no policies at all, no political content whatsoever, and just this relentless drumbeat of betrayal and humiliation, betrayal and humiliation. So you see how the project works. First of all, you create the proposition Mm -hmm. that creates the humiliation, and then you you just start seeding it and you get all of the benefits from it. For you know, a few years on, we've now got them benefiting from the humiliation that they help create. None of this is very hard to defeat, which is why it is so baffling to me that the counterforces are not able to construct their response to it. The response to it is to take that humiliation that has been imposed by their project and go, well, this is why it needs to stop now. But that voice doesn't seem to be there at all. He seems to be the only person who is talking in an effective emotional manner, apart from arguably, you could say, Caroline Lucas. Um, Some of the coverage of of, of this reminds me of Trump in 2016, obviously the way that he behaves, including the way he behaved uh, with Andrew Marr, which was to just be like, why aren't you talking about exactly what I want to talk about, Um, was very Trumpian. Um, Stephen, do you think there's a, that we still sort of struggle to cover populism responsibly or cover it in a way that does not fuel it? Because it almost seems that the phenomenon itself is covered and, and he isn't just not interrogated in the way that another politician who, for example, had a manifesto and policies would be interrogated. So I think there are a couple of problems with how journalists as a class, but particularly the broadcasters, cover populism and political parties in general, right? The, the first is, right, this 
essential myth of we don't drive support for it. I mean, ov- obviously, coverage drives support for political parties. The clue is that all political parties try and increase the amount of coverage they get. And it is very hard, seeing as we know that the polls overstated UKIP in 2014, we know that all of the pollsters have problems with getting uh, overly politicised people. And I would suggest, given how I know 4%, 5% is quite bad, but given, I know we're getting to change UK in more detail, but, but given uh, then the argument for voting for change uh, is not strong, uh, I would argue that seeing as we are at the moment giving the Brexit party huge amounts of prime time coverage uh, for polls, which there is reason to believe are not accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this, this thing's like, uh, I am, I am, I'm, I'm not someone who's a, a view of an app, who's a, an advocate of an absolute no platform uh, policy, but I do think you should have to earn your platform first, right? You see, even with the coverage of Tommy Robinson, right? A man who there is no evidence is going to uh, is going to get elected. There has never been any evidence that he is someone who is the head of a political movement that can successfully elect councillors, let alone anything more substantial. Why is he? Uh, why is he ever on on the BBC or ITV? Then you have um, the lack of airtime given. You know, no one after twenty ten when Caroline Lucas was first elected went down to Brighton and found, you know, found, you know, like, you know, Clara Bell, you know, run, runs a, a recycling centre, <laughs> used to vote, voted Labour all her life this time. Like, that 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 sort of doesn't happen. I kind of think in an odd way, this kind of, there's this sort of Remainer self-flagellation that you see a lot of kind of particularly broadcasters doing of going, mm. I went to somewhere a bit down at heel than I'd usually drive through and I found someone who said something shockingly racist. <laughs> May- Maybe there's a maybe there's a spirit I don't understand. Maybe there's a revolution coming. Um, and I just think I just think part of it is right is, it, it, and it, it's it's the kind of weird corollary of the kind of arched eyebrow and the kind of reflexive sneering that has characterised so much coverage of the Corbyn project. I kind of think like first off, just cover it like you would cover the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. right? These things like we, we would we would not have a situation where. Um, uh, I mean, weirdly, actually, with the the Nigel Farage NHS thing, right? Uh, we would never have a situation in which uh, Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn had their lead candidate in the Northwest be someone who is on the record writing the things Claire Fox did about the Warrington bombing, whose statements on it were at best, you know, mealy mouthed. Yeah, you know, they they weren't exactly a kind of full throated. You know, I'm desperately sorry for all of the hurt I've caused, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, would not have got through that interview. Uh, being asked questions about the NHS, uh, which we know that they have an answer to already. Um, so I kind of think part of it is to take populists seriously, to only give them exposure once they have shown they have earned it at the ballot box. And I also kind of think that there is no reason not to do interviews that are live to tape, you know, not edited, but simply so you can go, this wasn't true. Instead of that thing where someone can say something, the interviewer doesn't pull them up on it, mm. and you get the kind of imperfections of like there is there is no argument for those Mar interviews to be live other than the theatre, and I wouldn't, to be honest, say I thought the theatre was good enough to justify it. Mm. Two more things about the um, the Brexit party, Alex Andreu. Uh, thinks that we should stop energising his base by talking about them and, and sort of concentrate on getting our own turnout up because Farage has only ever succeeded in low turnout elections um, and that actually you do see it on, on, on Twitter, for example, people really getting quite depressed and kind of Remainers just thinking, you know, just how can we possibly defeat 
uh, the armies of Farage. So should should we should we be at this point, but basically just desperately trying to get out the vote and 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 sort of restore some optimism as opposed to turning it all into like a Farage show? I think for uh, Remainers, the elections might turn out to be a bit of a damp squib in that you know we Remainers saw this huge kind of swell of optimism earlier in the year when you had the petition to revoke Article Fifty, you know the march through London. And I think it's fair to say that the European elections are not going to be an event like that, in part because the kind of Remainer parties are pretty disorganized. They're split. Uh, They can't decide on which candidates to back and if whether or not even to, you know, support one independent candidate together. Um, Having said that, I don't think it's necessarily a reason for massive depression, as I already mentioned. If Farage does, as the current polls project him to do with his Brexit party, that's not too far off their performance in 2014. Um, It's similar levels to how anti-establishment kind of quote unquote populist parties perform in Europe. That's not to say that these parties as a whole don't have an impact in the European Parliament. We'll get to that later. They certainly will. But in terms of the macro picture, where does that leave Britain vis-a-vis Brexit? I think Stephen is absolutely right in the sense that, you know, the longer there is no majority for one course, I think Brexit becomes more unlikely if there is no majority, especially for, you know, a no-deal Brexit, or we certainly know that there's no majority for Theresa May's Brexit, which is actually a really hard Brexit, right? So then I think the possibility that there's no Brexit at all becomes higher. And also in terms of the delusion, I think that if Farage's party does well, what you might end up seeing is that the Tory party are instructed by, oh, my God, that to take it as an instruction to say, oh, my God, we need to push for harder Brexit. We need to push for no deal Brexit and try to go back to the EU. Remember the time mm-hmm. you know, we, we, this extension runs out in October. So if they take that as a sign after the elections to go back and try to renegotiate, we know how that's going to end. Right. It's not going to end well. And those fundamental decisions that the UK is still not willing to take they will have to be addressed at some point, whether it's a deal or a no deal Brexit. So I think if you look at the bigger picture, if you look at the Brexit party coming first in the elections, I don't think that really fundamentally changes the UK's position vis-a-vis the EU. And finally, Ian, what does Farage want apart from attention and more racism? Um, Because there's been (laughs) talks that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what happened in Canada, you know, and saying that the Brexit party would sort of effectively take over the Tory party after May goes um is that um is that likely and is that what farage really wants because so much of his message of course is based on not being uh the party that has to carry the can and have policies and such he used to be quite open about this he used to say well look, the purpose of ukip is is to influence tory policy Mm -hmm. and i think for a large part that's what it does now things have changed i mean ukip influenced tory policy so much that i would say the conservative party was a sort of de facto ukip party from the point that Theresa may took it over it was basically following ukip's agenda which is we will do anything it takes to reduce immigration even if it involves sabotaging our own economy it's now been pursuing that strategy for some time. It doesn't work very well. I guess you were trapped up. And then now Nigel Farage is there to pick up the spoils from that original salvo. So he benefits either way. And in this case, he'll be thinking very well that this is going to influence Tory policy and push them ultimately towards no deal. I'm not sure that he's right, by the way, because mm. I just think apart from a few, you look at almost everyone running for the Tory leadership up to possibly even including sort of Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab. You're right. They're going to go back. Let's say they're the leader. They're going to go. They're going to try and renegotiate. And the EU is going to go, no, here's the majority of being So it's basically, do you want no deal or do you want this? And I think most of them will sit there and go, oh, I fucking don't want no deal. Mm. Yeah. You think? 
I do, yeah. I do. I think, you know, honestly, I had to do a list of all the Tory leaders, which way they would go the other way, potential Tory leaders. The only one who I thought could do anything was Michael Gove. And I just thought he could go soft Brexit. He could go, no, he how seemed many, to me like the wild card guy. The rest of them, I, I don't think they How many on your list? There was quite a few was people. Was it like the Infinity like War poster? Yeah. It's more like Arya Stark's list. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we should talk about, obviously, uh, a couple of Remainy parties. Um, the Lib Dems, uh, after the council elections, um, sort of seem to be pariahs no longer. Did Was this just a matter of time and that people actually forgive coalition and, and tuition fees quite quickly or or do they owe a lot of their revival to to brexit well so gordon brown was obsessed uh when he was trying to take over from tony blair with the seven-year rule this idea and after seven years you cease to be new and i think these things right is you know the the rose garden and tuition fees are now outside that seven-year uh list the fact we've had what three years of conservative government on their own or, or or backed up by a party of the right obviously is kind of this kind of terrifying long running party political broadcast on behalf of the liberal democrats uh in coalition uh uh so i think yeah it's a fact it's a combination of all those things it also of course does help right and in 2014 they fought the european elections on a platform of we are the the longest standing biggest and most committed pro-European force in British politics. If you don't want Brexit, well, if you don't want out, because obviously Brexit didn't exist as a, a, a concept other than as a joke about about the Greek crisis. Um, if you don't want out, vote for us. And they got creamed. Whatever happens, they're not going to get creamed. So it's a combination of time and you know, them being the candidates of one side of the European poll. And this is uh, very bad news for Change UK, whose, whose whole thing was sort of, you know, banking on I think the Lib Dems still being in the in the sin bin, and mm-hmm. therefore people that would uh, might have gone for them would instead go to Change, um, and Change does seem to have made a few errors. Um, <laughs> and, and and I read a piece was um, I think was Stephen was pointing out that that used to the attention and clout that came with their old parties they haven't quite adjusted to the new reality of being mm. of being actually a very small new party. Um, I mean, I start to feel like, uh, uh, you know, that, that I may vote for them because I feel like I just want to, you know, encourage them, <laughs> which is perhaps yeah, a little yeah. condescending. No, I um, but, I but, yeah. but I mean, do you do you think some people say, oh, well, you know, it, it's sort of it's over already their moment. Do you do you think that's true or do you think that, you know, this is a bumpy start, but there's still potential? No, there's always that bit, you know, where we're political pundits and they're always like, oh, it's very important the way you make a first impression with a political party. And we were talking, we, everyone was using the present tense. And for the last couple of weeks, people have started to use the past tense as if, you know, I think actually that first impression is now pretty much cemented in there. I feel the same way. I sort of want to, I like the idea of people cooperating across tribal lines and all of these things. I really like that stuff. So I sort of, sort of tempted just on the basis of the proposition. But the reality is that the delivery has been shockingly bad. We've gone over, you know, things like the logo and things like the, the infinite names. But it's more than that. If, if you look, you know, when they put something out the other day, it all had the word remain in it. Now, admittedly, this podcast has that word in its title, but whatever. We're not, you know, running a political campaign where it was sort of remain with a stronger economy. It was, and it was just the language felt that kind of old, stale, managerial, distant language that we had during the referendum campaign. None of the immediacy and that kind of like, emotional strength that you see on from mostly on the Brexit side. Now, you're right to their credit. I mean, the Lib Dems seem like they are more open to using different kinds of language. 
when Caroline Lucas goes out and does videos and she's and she does this thing like thank you to leave voters, whatever you mm. feel about that stuff, you can see that she's sat there and she's thought about how do we address this stuff. You look at those guys and I'm just not seeing it. And I have to say I'm quite confused because I really do like quite a few of the people involved in that party, but there's only so much evidence you can have in one direction before you conclude you're fucking it up, mate. Mm. So before we move on, do you think do you think change are going to have a a sort of second chance to make a first impression? And... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think the odd thing is, is the, the depth of their failure is actually they haven't made a first impression. <laughs> like, I, mean, I think, but this, I think this is one of the things that it's really easy for all of us to forget, you know, when you, you know, when you do a podcast, when you're across it, when you, it's your job to cover politics, most people do not know who Change UK are. They do not know who any of the 11 MPs are in it. They do not know what their position on any issue is. Mm. And they have comprehensively failed to use any of the opportunities this election has afforded to introduce themselves to the public. The one advantage of that is this idea that they have a negative image in the mind. They have no image in the minds of the public. They are a non-presence. Their issue is, is then they, their first impression with journalists, um, and you can see this actually in the, the, uh, the prominence of the people getting sent to their events, right? The, the launch when they formed the independent group, but you effectively had, you know, more political editors than you could shake a stick. And now, obviously, we're a very small team, but it's this thing where I look at it and I just think, well, I mean, OK, if the Greens aren't doing something and if Plaid Cymru aren't, Cymru aren't doing something in, you know, on a mainline train station, then <laughs> maybe I would at that point cover your event because they, they've, they've shown through their lack of competence than... They are not going to do something worth looking at. Now, that's a much bigger problem. However, we shouldn't forget how much the mood music around the Lib Dems at Westminster was changed by that Richmond by-election. Mm -hmm. When they were essentially written off in advance and they completely uh, changed the language around them and also actually around the idea that Brexit was a done deal. So uh, as long as Change UK exists and has some kind of infrastructure, the possibility of that type of revival exists. However, yeah, one of the problems parties have is money. Uh, and I cannot imagine, were I someone who had donated money to Change UK, how I would look at this campaign and go, do you know what, I really mm. think I'm going to get a great return on my £5 or my £500 or my 50000 depending on what scale of donor uh, you are. And I also think, right, if, you, if people like working together, I'm not intending to be a party political broadcaster for the Liberal but if people mm. like working together with other parties, if they like something who has pro-Europeans as one of its founding values and something that's in their constitution, right, it's called the Lib Dems, and it's actually fairly <laughs> fairly good at the, the the basic bits of being a third party. So why wouldn't people vote for that instead of something which has had a fairly rough introduction to lie? But they could turn it around because they have no first impression. <laughs> good luck, change. <laughs> so that's where things stand in terms of polling, but it doesn't answer the question that every Remainer wants answered. How shall I vote on Thursday? Please tell me. Romaniacs podcast. <laughs> Should you vote Labour? Because some candidates that we like say they're a Remain party, even though they're also trying to bring the country together by getting Brexit done. What's better for a people's vote, Lib Dem or Green? What if you're a Scottish Remainer who doesn't want another independence referendum or a strong socialist, but also a hard Remainer? There's a wealth of attempts to make sense of this, including the data-driven website RemainVoter.com, which is up and running now, but it's a numbingly complex system. Uh, so I'm going to ask everyone, without saying who we vote for, unless you want to, um, what what thinking are we applying? Is it sort of ultra tactical, uh, or sort of just vote with vote with your heart? I mean, I, I do want to send uh, Labour a message, and I want to return um, Remain MEPs. 
The way you should vote is entirely dependent on what it is that you're trying to achieve. If you are trying to stop the Brexit party from coming number one, then you should vote for Labour, because that's the most likely party that's going to be able to do that. If you want to make it so at the end of this process, the votes for the Brexit party on one side and the votes for the Remainers on the other, in terms of the popular vote share, adds up, then you should vote for whoever you want out of, you know, the Lib Dems, the Greens, the SNP and Plaid Vorum, because that's the way to do it. If you're trying to return Remain MEPs, things get much more complicated very, very quickly. Because the mm. system is very, very hard to game. It's sort of, well, you sort of, in a way you admire the system because it's so hard to game. You sort of think it must be doing something right. But on the other hand, it's sort of, I quite, I'm not a big fan of first past the post, but at least first past the post, you can game that shit and you can tell people how to do it and they don't feel like they're being sort of experimented on by some mad scientist somewhere. Mm. But here it's just very, very difficult indeed. And it basically breaks down into sort of three different kinds of regions. If you're in a region... Uh, like the Northeast, which has like three MEPs, then it, you, you're a bit fucked, to be honest. Like even the Tories, with I think 17% of the votes, didn't return at an MEP in the last election. And it's unlike, I mean, at the top end of expectations, the Lib Dems might get to that kind of number, but they would have to be having a good night for it. So on that basis, you're sort of, you're in a position where you sort of think, well, you're probably just one, I'm going to have to vote for Labour, really. Or you're going to say, fuck it, it's about the popular vote, and I'll just vote for whoever I want, idealistically. On the top end of MEPs, you've got London, or uh, the Southeast, it's a place with like 10 MEPs or eight MEPs. And you can pretty much vote for whoever you want there because they're probably going to get above 8% to get in there. So you can vote for the Lib Dems, you can vote for the Greens. You don't need to be tactical about it at all. They'll get in. It's the middling ones, ones that have got between sort of say five to sort of seven MEPs. That's a bit harder, like the East of England. I don't know, you know, to do that, you need quite a bit of data to figure out how you're going to go. Who's got the best chance of getting over that line so they re return one MEP? There'll be stuff this weekend coming out from Best for Britain, which will be looking at regional data that will be able to inform the vote. I think we'll probably retweet that stuff and put it out there and people will do their best with it. But it's a pretty difficult game at that level and it's quite hard to instruct people on. I, would also, I mean, I would also had, it's almost dangerous to instruct them on it. And that's when I sort of find mm. myself slipping back towards Alex's way of looking at things. Mm. Just being like, no, fuck all of that. Just get your vote out. Mm. Encourage people to vote with their heart. Considering that it's not clear how well strategic voting in those seats can even function you might as well just tell people to get out there with their heart and do it. And that tends to be the way I go when it, when it comes down to it. So, yeah, I mean, tactical voting obviously operates very differently here. Stephen, you're, you're kind of a, a nerd for this stuff. Is, <laughs> is there any useful advice um, that doesn't involve kind of, you know, spreadsheets and, you know, online wargaming um, that, that would sort of help people decide if they did want to vote, if they did want to vote tactically? Um, yeah, I mean, actually, I, I I kind of think some of the kind of it's so difficult because because the thing is, Dehont is great uh, for a national list. The problem is, the smaller you make it, the less proportional it is. And because the kind of constitutional question when we moved to Dehont was, how do you ensure that Scottish and Welsh nationalism isn't squeezed out entirely? Uh, that means you then end up working backwards from, well, if Scotland is a region, you obviously can't then have England as one region, which right. means you then divide it up in lots of weird ways, which is why you end up with places with three and places with ten. But actually, to be honest, in terms of if, if you want to vote tactically in this uh, election, right, where there are essentially two things, right, you want, yeah, well, there are three considerations. It's actually quite easy. You just have to work out which one of those inputs you care about, right? If you want uh, the Brexit party not to have the most MEPs, uh, vote for the Labour Party. If that is your central concern, you should you should do that. Uh, although some polls suggest maybe you can get away with voting for the Lib Dems, but you should probably uh, vote. If you want to send a message that um, 
a party which is at best equivocal on Brexit cannot rely on your vote if it continues to be so. Vote for a Remain party. Uh, if you want to return the most number of pro-Remain MEPs, if you're in Scotland, vote for the SNP. If you're in Wales, vote for Plaid Cymru. And if you're anywhere else, vote for the Liberal Democrats. If you just want to boost the number of Remain votes, again, vote for a Remain party and just pick the one that you are closest to. But I kind of think part of the problem is there is, has been a slight cosseting. I'm where this is a little bit like, um, you know, going on to... Yeah, an Arsenal podcast and going, do you know who's wonderful? Gareth Bale. Uh, but, um, but, uh, I also don't know what that meant. But, uh, <laughs> I have no idea. But I think there's been the slight kind of cosseting of Remainers, like, oh, it is difficult. It's not difficult, right? The, the strategic calculation of the Labour Party is whether or not the tariff for being a Remain party is electorally higher than the price for being a Brexit party. And up until the point that Remainers definitively change that calculation, they are going to continue to be mm. disappointed that's by... Yeah, the that's really true. But the, the only no. danger is you could, at certain points, allow in an, another MP on the basis of making that decision. Because the, well, the, com the complexity is, like, what do you want? It, it seems like, you said, you've really got to understand what your motive is. And so, like I said, if you want to kind of, you know, go with your heart and also put pressure on Labour and show your vote isn't going to be taken for granted... That very decision, yeah, yeah. like you say, might be the thing that lets a Brexit and another Brexit MEP. Yeah, well, that's the price, in. I guess. Yeah. You know, and so it's sort of I don't, I don't know whether I've. I certainly haven't had to, as generally, normally a Labour supporter. I haven't had to make that decision at a general election. It's like the party I want to vote for is the party I want to win, mm. and where when I've lived, you know, lived in London, and the party most likely to win. So basically, all the factors converge. Whereas here, I suppose, before you even get into all the kind of you know, checking out RemainVoter.com. You just have to decide what is it that you want. But it's one thing for the movement, for the cause, so to speak, is one thing, is one motive better than another? I suppose that's the thing, is is uh, boosting the, part, the, the the votes of Lib Dem, Greens, Change, etc. Um, and putting pressure on Labour and not rewarding Labour for equivocation. Is that more important than driving down the number of, Brexit seats. Like, is there any way of objectively going one motive is better than another? Absolutely not. I mean, I only know what, what I feel, which is that I do want to deliver a message to Labour. And that's uh, that quite intensely. And that wasn't easy, but by the way, in terms of I remember when on that day where sort of Labour came out, if I said that they had, I remember sort of writing, look, if you're a Remainer, I don't know how you can vote for this at the moment. If you want to send a message to them, even though there's good people running, you don't do it. And some of those people were kind of like on the, on the almost mates, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, people that you really like and you really admire the way they've conducted yourself over the last two years. And you're basically going, don't vote for this person. We've had some of them on the show. And you just sort of think like, well, I don't feel completely fantastic about this. But then on the other hand, what else are you left with at this stage? Like, if, if you are not showing that any pressure is being... Mm applied from that side, then you're going to keep on getting the same result and they're going to keep on triangulating against you. Well, we've had a few MEPs and now MEP candidates on the show. Yeah, and almost, every, almost all of them. Yeah, and every time <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't want to vote for Labour, I just I picture them sort of all lined up looking at me like, come on, <laughs> I, came to your, I came to your studio, I gave up an hour of my afternoon. <laughs> yeah, 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 that sucks. Um. Nina, you you talked a little bit about uh, that we may be sort of overstating the importance of the of of the EU elections. Anyway, um, I mean across the rest of Europe, I've seen um, I saw an interesting Rob Ford tweeted and said that actually 
that the, the kind of the discourse problem that we have here around Brexit was was sort of mirrored across uh, the EU27, which is people making a huge deal out of the far right vote mm -hmm. and not really talking so much about the equal size of the kind of green, very pro-EU kind of liberal vote. Um, are, you, are you expecting... Are you expecting Britain's sort of vote to be in line with a lot of other countries? Is, is it going to be is it going to be anomalous? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, for the question, are we overstating the importance of these elections? I think the answer to that is yes <clears throat> and no. So I think it can be overstated. That's in very late. That's very late. Leadership <laughs> yeah, answer, I know. Isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn, I got you. <laughs> um, in the context of the fundamental choices the UK has to make vis-a-vis -vis Brexit, I don't think the dynamics of this of these elections fundamentally shifts that. I think the, the choices on the table remain the same. Nonetheless, it's important from a European context to remark that these elections do matter. Even if the kind of populist kind of uh, right-wing vote gets about a third of the seats in the European Parliament, which is pretty much what they won in 2014, it still has an impact because the European Parliament matters. They have um, important sway on things like the Eurozone reforms, on budgetary matters. And this will, of course, have an influence at a time when the EU in general is kind of a little bit rudderless at a time when kind of the liberal internationalist world order is being challenged. So these kind of... Uh, populist parties, rather than having any progressive policies or any policies to take forward, you know, they're kind of sado-populist protest parties that just block everything. So the, so the kind of inertia of the European <clears throat> Union as a whole continues when you have such a huge block of the European Parliament, about a third who are, you can put under this banner of right-wing populist or um, uh, whatever you want to call it. Nonetheless, it is important to remark that they, in the European Parliament, they operate in political groupings and the big political groupings will continue to set the agenda. So even though they, these parties will set up a block, they are not unified as one voice. But you can expect them to push back on things like migration, Eurozone reforms and all these things that if you are a liberal internationalist, you believe in the same values that, you know, supposedly uh, free trading global Britainers espouse, that's not a good sign. You know, it's not a good sign for the UK. It's not a good sign for Europe. It's not a good sign for the West as a whole. So, yeah, these elections are important. But vis-a-vis -vis the UK's position in particular, I don't think they are the be all and end all. And I don't think they fundamentally shift the UK's position mm. versus Europe. So, so our sort of message, even though we're also going to obviously, you know, tweet and link to various kind of resources, I suppose our message is like, decide what it is that you want. Because you have to decide, because there's no clear answer. Yeah, exactly. And, and don't get disheartened if the Brexit party comes first. You know, don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I said, if it encourages a Tory leader to go back and renegotiate with the EU, then it actually makes them remain even more likely. Uh, Stephen, the statesman seems to be having quite a good Brexit, isn't it? Uh, sales and influences up. The covers are relentlessly terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, it's constantly just kind of like, you know, the Houses of Parliament on fire or someone ripping up a Union Jack and crying. Um, what's it be? Because I, I remember listening to the podcast, you know, sort of I don't know, some, some time ago and the kind of running joke with you and Helen Lewis was just like, oh, do we have to talk about Brexit? And then it became, there was, was like sort of nothing, nothing else. Um, how's it been like for you and for the magazine sort of covering this story is it is it kind of well there's you know endless sort of you know drama and big meaty issues or do you like uh, jeremy corbyn would you like it to just sort of get out of the way and you could do other things well so i i really have two very sharply divergent answers that on the one hand you know when i uh you know first started in journalism i you were writing about uh you know huge and substantial reforms to education. You were writing about hugely consequential rows about policy within the coalition. You were writing about a deeply exciting, well thought through project to change the country from the opposition led uh, by Ed Miliband. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, measures to, to make our energy production more green by the government. There were lots and lots of more uh, of, of more worthwhile things to do than than ripping up our 40 years of institutional arrangements uh, in order to end up recreating the same things in a, a different way with, <laughs> with the kind of sovereignty label on them. Um, so for me, like the intense frustration of having to do Brexit all the time is there are so many policy chat yeah, like it is it will it has furred up the art the arteries of Whitehall right at a time when we we desperately want to transition to uh being a, a net zero carbon economy mm -hmm. in which we still have endemic uh poverty uh, you can visibly see you know, every station terminal every street corner every major city etc etc uh so there's a frustration that uh, so much of the time in the politics column, I'm having to find another way of saying the trade-off. The trade-offs of Brexit do not change. Mm -hmm. The parliamentary calculations do not change. But unless those trade-offs are grappled with and faced one way or the other, none of the other substantial issues can be dealt with. So I think I, I, I instinctively agree with the kind of kind of not even that subtly expressed view of the Labour leadership, and they would rather something else was being talked about where I become very irate is this idea including from Ed Miliband who really should know better because he's someone who was a very effective minister who understands what it's like to actually pull the levers of change in Whitehall who's someone who who does not support a second referendum saying we need a war footing for climate change now I agree we need that level of obsessive focus uh, by Whitehall than it had on winning the second world war but the idea that you can do that while renegotiating your institutional relationship with the EU is for the birds. Mm -hmm. And so I find that intensely frustrating. However, the excitement is because, uh, with the exception of this podcast and a couple of other places, the coverage of Brexit is mostly so bad. Um, I do really feel excited and empowered to, to I know add value is a horrendously kind of corporate word, but to add value, right? The the fact that, you know, our, our national broadcaster, one that... Most people are we are essentially forced to pay through uh, pay for through the coercive power of the state. Um, you know, the other day, Laura Kay, I have a lot of time for others. She said, you know, unfortunately, today we're all tweeted. Unfortunately, today we're all discussing customs arrangements. It's just like this is actually an, the essence of why this is an important and contentious policy <sighs> I issue. I didn't see that. And I just kind of looked at it and I just think <laughs> and I just feel like the, the fact that it, there is so there are so many people who just want to cover Brexit as palace intrigue. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it Rob? Is it May? Mm -hmm. Oh, is is Corbyn going to lose control of the Labour Party, et cetera, et cetera? You do feel this excitement that you can purely by going, look, 
in many, yeah, like here are the actual trade-offs of a customs union Brexit. In many yeah. ways, actually, the worst possible way to do Brexit because you have all of the economic harm yeah. without even the, I think, illusory, but let's at least give intellectual house room to the idea that there might be some bonus to striking your own trade deals. You quite literally go, it's like going, I want to jump off the cliff, but I don't want to be given the £100 for jumping off the cliff at the end. Right? It, it is, it's just mad. And so there are, I do find it exciting that there is somewhere where you can actually genuinely do something better uh, than than what is on offer. I just would prefer, I guess, to be doing something better than what was on offer when we were talking about why uh, the cuts were a bad idea or why we needed to do something about climate change. Mm. And we've had some, you know, M MPs on the show, including Alex Sobel last week, who've talked about, um, you know, well, obviously not wanting to be seen to be complaining, but talking about how rough it is at the moment, people, you know, sort of rage on the doorstep and death threats just being seemingly quite standard now. Obviously, the whole the period of the, the vote after vote, um, you know, which just seemed kind of like an exhausting nightmare. You talk to MPs a lot. Um, like, what's the general kind of emotional mood about are they all feeling kind of trapped by brexit are they all are they feeling like you know this is kind of derailing derailing the country not not brexit itself but you know just derailing sort of politics and raising the temperature of anger i think yeah a lot of mps they don't feel as, as bad as they did before uh the extension when everyone was you know was so tired and you had people who were essentially the the kind of living dead uh but they do have this sense of, you know, being shout. I think weirdly, the people who are oddly the most miserable are the ones who have not picked a side in the Brexit mm -hmm. divide. Because yeah. once you do, at least half of the people shouting and sending nasty things to you stop. <laughs> Where, uh, whereas, um, and, they, and the ones who have, do talk about having a sense of liberation. Like, once you've said, so I was talking to one of the few Labour MPs, uh, to to actually you know have the the courage to not only just abstain or vote against a second vote but to then vote for the deal which is the other option available and they were saying actually I was like well, what do your members make of it and they said well look if you make the argument about why I think we need to do it they're on board with it and said and actually I feel I feel free and I spoke to someone else who similarly at the same time we come out for another referendum and similarly they went the second you kind of free yourself from having to go this model this model that model and you go look I think all of these trade offs are bad you feel intellectually unblocked. But I think lots of them feel intellectually blocked. Many of them feel, credibly feel scared for their own safety. And also, mm. even among people who, who want it to happen because they think that the referendum result needs to be carried through, uh, don't forget that large chunk of, of, particularly on the Conservative side, MPs who backed Brexit, not because they liked the EU, but they didn't think it was worth the time. I think it's visibly still not worth the time and they feel very beat down by the fact that their whole careers are going mm. to be doing Brexit. How long do you think that the Brexit era will will last? This idea of sort of getting on with it and getting it out of the way uh, seems sort of somewhat optimistic. I mean, just what the period that I suppose historians would go, well, these were, you know, the Brexit years. How long do you think that will last before we could actually go, this episode in our island history has passed and we can try and fix climate change in the six months we have remaining? <laughs> Um, I mean, I think so. The, the thing I, I'm continually fascinated by this, right, because when Mark Carney stands up and goes, I'm going to hold interest rates at you know, 0.5, no one goes, ah, a post-financial crisis monetary measure. But that's what it is, right? Those are, those are still post-financial crisis 
monetary measures. Now, Brexit is going to endure as a thing, you know, assuming that somehow the withdrawal agreement does pass, which feels like a big assumption, but let's just roll with it for a second, right? We, we will still be in the Brexit era for, in terms of its impact on policy for decades. But I, my assumption is that we will stop using the word Brexit in the same way we've stopped talking about the financial crisis, despite the fact that we are still in a... Because I suspect historians will, will see this as merely part of the series of events following uh, the, the, the Great Recession in, in 07-08. But, um, but I think Brexit probably is a word will breathe its last, uh, you know, if it passes. But because the broadcasters are so addicted to jargon and creating new ones, I sort of assume probably Brexit will go out the window in 2021, even if, as I now increasingly expect we will be, we are still in extension mm. negotiating our exit. And do you think that the kind of the populist, because the populist wave in this country is very much pinned to this, to this policy, now, if, if Brexit, if a deal passed, or even if we had no deal, do you feel that populism would then, would th that would sort of burn itself out? Because, I mean, obviously, you can tell that Farage is invested in it not burning itself out. Even though he's constantly, I'm retiring. Oh, go on then. Oh, I'll do another rally. Um, do, you know, do, you, do you see this as, as something that's going to be kind of, that there is, a, there is a, going to be a sort of post-Brexit form of populism? So, so I'm going to start with a thing which I think is is easy because it's impossible, right? So no no deal if it happens is like the meteor striking the earth, right? No one would, when the meteor hit, go, I wonder what species is going to replace the dinosaurs. Is it going to be the water voles and have survived? Is it going to be that handful of birds? <laughs> you just go, well, this is this this is a cataclysm. I uh, I think you know. Yeah, I know it, it, it's become a joke because it is funny, but it is actually an entirely serious one to remember. This is a country where people called the police when KFC ran out of chicken. Mm. This idea that in an advanced economy that has never in the life of anyone here known occupation or fascist dictatorship or communist dictatorship, that is not going to be an epoch-shaking political event if Sainsbury's runs out of food which it would if we had a no deal in October. The only way that you could absorb no deal would be if every supermarket decided to spend a year preparing for it, which there is never going to be a situation in which the EU allows an extension that is long enough for, yeah. for it to lose its, its forces. So I think no deal, uh, there's no point kind of going what happens to populism afterwards because politics will be profoundly different after, after a no deal Brexit if it, if it were to happen. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, this is where I find it impossible to separate my feelings about Brexit being a calamity from my um, political analysis, because my assumption is, is that um, because there will not be a Brexit dividend, particularly there will not be a Brexit dividend for the people who voted for Brexit. Uh, yeah, I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, it's not really true to say that people who voted for Brexit were were economically left behind. Actually, on an economic perspective, it, that uh, tracks equally across both Remain and Leave. Um, but, you know, ultimately, if you are one of the majority of farmers who voted for Brexit, prob's not going to work out that well for you. If you are a <laughs> pensioner who voted for Brexit, prob's not going to work that well for you. Um, so the, the, the sense that Brexit has been, you know, Brexit is a mandate and can only ever be betrayed. It can be betrayed by it not happening. It can be betrayed by it happening and not living up to the promises. But so one way or another, there will be an audience for a we was robbed, whatever happens with Brexit. And what do you think is is going to happen with the with the two major parties? I think and the, that that kind of week where where the independent group 
formed. Um, it felt like this was the thing that we'd all been talking about for ages that the parties couldn't sustain. You know, going into the, I mean, you know, the local elections, the Tories and Labour both did badly. Tories obviously much worse. Going into European elections, uh, definitely bad for the Tories, possibly disappointing for Labour. Um, and yet that kind of, oh my God, how many more MPs are going to leave and, and, and join, you know, the independent group seems to have sort of subsided. Do you think that the kind of... Um, the, the crisis for these two parties has kind of passed for the time being. Will it, will it come back? Are they, are they still kind of, are they still fragile? I mean, at the moment, it feels like change, just the independent group is a bit like Leica, you know, the, the dog that the Soviet Union sent into space, which obviously died in orbit. <laughs> um, but crucially, a man did get to the moon, right? That, you know, the, the, the hunger, the, you know, that brief surge in the polls. I think it's very interesting. You said, oh, I'm thinking about voting them because I like the idea. And I think it is interesting that a party which you cannot construct an argument for it to be a sensible or efficient use of your vote in the European elections to vote for it is polling at 4%. Now, maybe it will underperform that. I suspect it probably will for a variety of, of institutional reasons. But it does show that there is an appetite for something like it. Maybe it'll be filled by the Lib Dems. Maybe it could be filled by the Green Party. But there is an an awareness that our current big two parties are are not uh, optimised to deal with the challenges of the 21st century. So I think in an odd way, just as uh, people would have looked very foolish when Leica was shot in space going, well, we're never going to get a person up there. The ability to get a person into space, you'd know, actually pull off what, what change seemed to have failed to do utterly, uh, I think is still a very live one. Our electoral system makes it hard, but as uh, Scotland does show, and indeed the continued survival of the Liberal Democrats as a third force, right? First past post makes it harder, but it doesn't make it impossible. That's the kindest mm. way I've ever heard anyone describe a party as a dead dog in space. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the show is here, and that means something else for the Brexit time capsule. Stephen Bush, what's going into our steel tomb of stuff we'll need if we ever leave the EU? So I'm actually going to put uh, the Dehont system. In. <laughs> is it, is it just because of the puns? Not, 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 not just because of the puns and not just because I'm an electoral uh, electoral systems nerd. But even though uh, because of the, the, you know, the some of the unique aspects of the of these islands politics, it, it, it doesn't necessarily uh, work in the way I would like within England. Um, it is the only UK-wide electoral event in which uh, the innate unfairness and disproportionality of first-past-the-post, which you kind of, you see with lots of the ludicrous coverage of, of Farage, how distortive that is, right? He turns up in Pontefract and people go, oh, a right-winger filling a, a, an old man's, a working man's club in, 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 in former mining Yorkshire. It's like, well, 10,000 people voted for the Conservative Party in Pontefract two years after the miners' strike. So there's always been some people willing to vote for the right there. Only <laughs> our terrible electoral system makes us think that there are seas of red, seas of mm. blue, uh, and yeah, and, and these odd sort of weird islands of yellow. And I just think, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the need to build alliances to argue the case uh, for your policies through evidence, through give and take, through consensus building, I do think is... Uh, Essential, yeah, is is innately positive. I think it's a, a tragedy that we don't have that system for our own elections. And I think we are. I mean, I am one of the reasons why I'm thrilled about these European elections, as well as the fact that it means that we are still 
however briefly, in the EU, is the is the one opportunity in which I have a decision to make other than am I going to be a pebble in Diane Abbott's landslide or am I going to be someone crushed mm. by Diane yeah. Abbott's mm. landslide? Uh, and, you know, no shade to Diane, who I have huge admiration for as a historical figure, but, you know, it's not a particularly life-affirming choice. So I think Dehont <laughs> is something we will miss a great deal, and I'm very excited that I'm going to get to have my vote count at least one more time. Yeah, it's funny. It's weird what an electoral reform junkie I've become now. <laughs> and now here's Nella Sampaio with our closing European language clip in Portuguese. Já estou a viver no UK há 27 anos, tenho dois filhos nascidos aqui e foi-me aplicado 5 anos no press status. Um, este Brexit é uma treta. That means I've lived in the UK for 27 years, my kids were born here, and now I'm told I can only stay for another five years. Brexit is crap. Yes, it is, Nella. Yes, it is. Um, we should also probably point out, Nella, that that's, that shouldn't be, that there's no scenario in which that should be true. So you should get in contact with us on Twitter, because there's, if, if you've been did, here for that yeah. long, there's no way, there's no way. So I don't want you worrying unnecessarily. It's, you have to be here for, under the settled status thing until you get settled mm, status. Mm, and it, it might be that that you're referring to. There's no, there's no period where you're going to be chucked out. We're here for all of your immigration needs and for general emotional reassurance. In, in any language. <laughs> in any language. We need your European language clips. Record a short one on your phone and send it to us at info at We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Stephen Bush, thanks for coming in. Are you looking forward to a, to a fun week of charts and graphs and <laughs> questioning polls and... I always, although I am deeply worried about what this, these questions have revealed about the state of my personal brand, but I, I'm, 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 I'm always excited for a chart or a graph. Well, you know, you're also, you're also like football and, uh, and space travel. So, you know, it's not just charts and graphs. Uh, so Steve's coverage will be in the New Statesman and uh, in the Morning Call newsletter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Now, please be upstanding for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a roll call of some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to Richard Gerrard, Dave Green, Jeff Dodds, Edward Richardson, Darren Sharp, EJ Pratt, Alan Harris, Angela Petusini. Izzy Mant and Jane Gilliland. Hello to Ali, Mark Menzocci, Rob Colling, Mags Walker, David Murphy, PinItToMe.com, Sarah Charles, Dr. Doreen Ridge, John Morris, and Terry O'Donovan. And thanks for me to Benjamin Frost, Andrew Reed, Philip Marshall, T. Collins, Luke Scott, Paul Hunkin, Mark Dolby, James Welsh, Becky McMurdo, and Esper. We'll see you all next week. Romaniacs was presented by Doria Lenski with Ian Dunst and Nina Schick. The producer is me, Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by Sophie Black and Tom Bullen of Air Adele Studios. Thank you, Tom, for your invaluable assistance. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.